independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. We need to be really careful in the way that we handle bees and we can't just see them as part of the agricultural system without having care for them as living creatures. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Rosamond Portis, who is a researcher and artist working in the environmental humanities. Her current research focuses on young people's and children's experiences of environmental change and her PhD, which she finished in 2021, examine the social and cultural dimensions of bee decline with a focus on creative explorations of bees' lives. The colony collapse disorder crisis sort of blew up, I should say, around 2006, so mid-2000s. And I always like to say, and you know, this is taken from the works that I've read on this particular crisis, it started with the story of a man called David Hackenberg, who had that particularly troubling experience when he went to pay a visit to his hives one day and essentially he he found that they were completely empty and he was in no way prepared for this because he recalled that when he last went to visit his hives that they were boiling over with bees and that's a quote by Cox Foster and Van Engelsdorp who are very engaged with um, research around colony collapse disorder. So apparently over half of his 3,000 hives seemed to have essentially been deserted and that he had no real idea as to why this was happening. So this was what is colloquially known as the first reported case of colony collapse disorder. It's been labelled the kind of ground zero for this, for this event occurring. And since that event occurred, many more cases started to come out and we saw this real crisis start to arise around the disappearance of honeybees, the the mystery of the disappearing bees. We know today that in the last few years, the kind of rate of bona fide cases of colony collapse disorder has dropped and that it is the result of various different factors that come into play. But of course, as you say, we pin it as the reason as to why Honeybees might be in decline, but there are so many other factors that are playing into that. But it's been hailed as the kind of buzzword for honeybee decline or honeybee collapse. Right. 
Well, in typical whodunit plots, they're typically very specific culprits of the murder that get revealed at the end. But most endangerment and extinction stories aren't that simple. And of course, the same is true for our bee populations as well. As you write, as Winston contemplates, the honeybee collapse has been particularly vexing because there's no one cause, but rather a thousand little cuts. However, the idea that we may never truly find a satisfactory answer to this ecological whodunit is a fact which only continues to fuel this mystery narrative, end quote. I'm curious to hear you talk more about the impacts of this problem being framed perhaps in an overly simplified way as a whodunit mystery as such, as well as this invitation to see the more accurate and complex perspective of the, quote, slow violence that our honeybee populations have been experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. So I dedicated a large proportion of my PhD thesis, which was centered around unpacking what was happening with the, the bee crisis to actually figuring out or trying to figure out, I should say, what on earth was really happening. And actually, there's so many myriad different factors which come into play here. If you look at something like honeybees, you also have social and political debates coming into play as well. So just to put that into context, I did a lot of work with people who are or align themselves as natural beekeepers. And the reasons that they articulate or that they focus on for bee loss may be very different from people who work with honeybees in a more commercial sense or in a more scientific sense, perhaps. Not to say that natural beekeeping isn't scientific, but just trying to articulate, you know, the different perspectives that people might come from. So someone in a natural beekeeping community, for example, might suggest that one of the reasons that honeybees are weakened is because we replace a lot of their natural food source so that the honey that they produce of course and the, and the pollen we replace that with sugar substances and I remember talking to a natural beekeeper who said that replacing their food sources or trying to boost them with sugar sugar substances was the equivalent of somebody taking away our fruits and our vegetables and giving us something like leucosade in replacement and then going to us why are you sick you know how can you be sick So to her, that was a real strong reason and real clear reason as to why honeybees are in decline. And yet when I spoke to people working from a more entomological perspective, there was a sense that natural beekeeping was really damaging because actually it was allowing disease to spread. And and whilst it worked on the premise that bees would, the strong bees would survive, this one person I was talking to said that actually bees won't survive. They have been weakened to the point where they need our aid, they need our support, they need the sugar substances So you have different perspectives coming into play there. It's not just black and white, oh, this is a reason and this is a reason. You do have different debates coming in. There are obviously some very, very clear reasons. Dave Golson is somebody that I recommend to anybody who's interested in learning about bee decline. And he thinks about all insects. He doesn't just focus on honeybees. He doesn't just focus on bees. He focuses on lots and lots of wonderful insects. He is known for his work on wild bees particularly. But he talks about the fact that habitat loss is one of the major factors and sort of the major factor which affects bee species. He has in one of his books a quite funny, I suppose funny quote about the fact that in the UK particularly, one of the main reasons that we lost a lot of our hedgerows and a lot of our spare, you know, wild bits of habitat or wilder bits of habitat, I should say, 
is because during World War II, we were cut off from the food supply um, coming in from Europe and other countries. And therefore, he says, in a very joking way, Hitler is to blame for the loss of bees. And interestingly, he later mentions that in another book. So I think maybe some people commented on it, sort of saying it wasn't quite blaming Hitler. But yes, he does talk in a very, very clear and very accessible way. All the all the factors and all the different social and political ongoings that actually impact uh, impact bees' lives. So yes, habit, habitat loss is a major, major factor, and it's one that I focus on a lot. Going back to honeybees, there is a lot to say that honeybees have been weakened through the way in which we've interacted with them as humans. So speaking from a more natural perspective, natural beekeeping perspective, there is the sense that the hives that we use do not reflect the natural log hives that people would have used for, or that honeybees would have made their own homes in. There's a sense that we take too much of the honey and we do not enter into a relationship of care with them, but we see them much more as products to consume from. And that's a really damaging factor in how bees have or honeybees have developed and how they've been allowed to grow and thrive as a species. There's lots of nuances in that. You know, there's there's work on the fact that the wax, when you you take wax from the honeybee hives and you recycle that wax and you put it back into another hive that actually contains that could contain diseases that are being spread around the hives for example so actually we need to be really careful in the way that we handle bees and we can't just see them as part of the agricultural system without having care for them as living creatures there's a brilliant work by Eileen Christ and she talks about the fact that once we start to see animals as part of agriculture we take away their agency And I think that's really interesting in the case of bees because they are seen as these very romanticised species in lots of ways. And we do offer them this capacity for culture. And yet there's also this complete other way in which we see them, which is part of our agricultural system. Mm. And in a way, I don't really feel like I've come to understand how those can sit in connection with each other. They seem like they should one should rule the other out and yet they they haven't come they haven't managed to do that so in that in that sense they're a really interesting case study for thinking through why despite the kind of love and care we have for them we've still not I don't want to say allowed for them to become into this state of um, vulnerability but certainly have not helped them in in protecting themselves from what we're doing as humans to the world yeah, and it certainly can become problematic when people start to understand honeybees as singularly serving the purpose of supporting, you know, our agriculture system because they have wonderful complex lives of their own mm-hmm. beyond this function that they serve for people and for communities. And what I've come to observe for mainstream narratives to do with extinction is that I think a lot of them overly rely on these categories of not endangered, endangered, and extinct. And Mm -hmm. these are more quantitative measures based on data and overall population size and status. And technically, we could say that the human species is not endangered given our thriving Mm -hmm. population, but 
how about the quality of life that a lot of people are experiencing? So even among species that aren't categorized as being endangered, what might we be alerted to in terms of their transforming cultures, dynamics, and states of aliveness? And then even among species who are endangered, there are also similar, more qualitative nuances in their stories as well. In an article you write about honeybees, you share the effects of climate change have disrupted the interrelationship between plant and pollinator, starving yeah. bees of their floral food. Human-led experiments have led worker honeybees with shorter lives and more docile natures. The social and biological natures of bees has become infected through human endeavor, end quote. You kind of started touching on all of this, but to these points, I'd be curious to learn more about how particular human-led practices and experiments or otherwise climate change at large have transformed the cultures and dynamics and natures of honeybees. What more can you share on this front? Yeah, absolutely. So I started to touch on that a little bit, as you say. I think I would direct you to the work of Jake Kozak, who I feel is much more expert on how our practices have influenced on honeybees. He writes a phenomenal article which outlines how honeybees' actual biology have become weakened through experiments, but also through the way in which we treat them, the way in which we embroil them in these these worker practices which put our needs and desires first and over time have have come to actually change their biology so that they're not as resilient as they perhaps once were. He also goes into lots of detail about I'm casting my mind back here, but he goes into lots of detail about various different kind of experiments that have happened. I think talking about using bees to detect certain chemicals and perhaps testing it through their honey. I feel that it's been some time since I've truly engaged with that work. So I would suggest redirecting you to there. What I can do and probably talk about more clearly is climate change as a factor. Climate change is something that I really wanted to draw attention to in bees because it's one of those more climate or the climate crisis is one of those things that can feel very abstract and we can feel quite disconnected from we know that lots of people are affected by it and they have been for many years and we, um, we know that people are becoming more visibly affected by it all over the globe. But bees are one of those interesting species that we are starting to understand the effects of climate change on, but we're still working them out because it's still a developing phenomenon. One of the main reasons, beyond the fact that they're affected by the adverse weather, you know, bees will fly out in February because couple of years ago or three or four years ago now even the pandemic has sort of slipped time a little bit but we had a really 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 hot February it was boiling it was something like 20 degrees in the UK and obviously bees started to come out and then they were they were harmed by the the harsh weather which followed so you have examples like that and we know that that is a direct consequence of the climate crisis but you also have this this breaking, this cracking of the phenological relationship between plants and flowers and, and bee species. And it's not just honeybees, of course, it's other bee species as well, where essentially bees are coming out at particular times and the food sources that they need aren't there, again, linked to this change in weather patterns that were were relatively stable and are becoming increasingly unstable or shifting year by year. So that that in itself is a massive problem. 
some research that I've seen more recently is talking about the the fact that places, because of the steady change to temperature, essentially bees are becoming pushed out of certain places they they live. I was listening to an audiobook today, actually revisiting one of the books that I found most inspirational in in my life, you know, ahead of this this podcast. And it was Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall um, Kimura. And she was talking about she was talking about the maple tree. And she was talking about the fact that as this the, the lands where the maple tree lives become hotter, they are going to be pushed out of those spaces and become the equivalent of climate refugees. And I was thinking actually that bees are in that same position, you know, bee species and other insect species as well. As the world becomes or shifts into different temperatures, they will have to move as well. They'll have to move accordingly. And they will also be what what Robin Walkimera calls climate refugees, which we think of as a very human term. But we know we should extend that possibility to species beyond beyond the human. One of the key messages I picked up from your work, which I hadn't really thought about before, is that due to the sensationalized narratives surrounding the decline of bee populations, the mm-hmm. extinction of bees has become a preemptively mourned event. Yeah, I'm still kind of processing and thinking through what this means for us, that even though collectively bees are still very present in a lot of our landscapes, farms, and gardens, their state of being has become culturally and narratively tied to extinction for many people. What stood out to you most as you thought through the implications of this preemptive mourning and this idea that through imagining their extinction, we have a far greater chance of now resisting it? Yeah, bees are really interesting in the fact that I feel like they're both absent and present at the same time. And it's their very presence which allows their absence to be so resisted against because we because we're still seeing them because we're still interacting with them because they're still there and yet they're talked about as gone they're talked about as lost or we're losing the bees we must must do something to help the bees that keeps reminding us of their potential absence and we we get kind of embroiled into this we need to save them we need to save them because they might potentially be gone so I came to this idea of preemptive mourning because of the way I see that people attach themselves to this idea. And I think there is this real grief. And I think that's a really valid grief. You know, it is a a valid emotion that we feel about bees. We are mourning them, but we're also holding on to them as well. And I think that's a very unusual situation to be in. We often think about mourning as coming after loss. And because of that, I think it's really interesting to study what can come good of that, what, what, what we can use that for. It's the same way that when we talk about anger or we talk about anxiety, we say, well, how can that lead us to a sense of agency? How can it, how can it be a driver for, for action? And so I think the preemptive mourning of bees is technically, you know, it's technically incorrect to say that bees are gone because they're not, they're not gone. There's lots of species who, which have gone and all are, or are endangered but as a collective species they haven't gone but I don't think it's a bad thing to actually embrace that preemptively morning and say well we already care that they may be gone so what can we do about it now how can we respond to that I think when I first came across this idea or first started thinking about this preemptive morning I did think oh it's bad we should be focusing on things that are really really truly lost 
But actually, I think the whole process of mourning is enhanced by our realizing that, yes, we are, are grieving for things that are truly gone, but that same feeling is already coming for things that are still present or species that are still present. So how can we resist feeling like that again in the, or, or feeling that on a deeper level in the future when they truly, truly are to the point where we can't resist that, that loss? It's interesting how the, the kind of crisis aspect of bees, the narrative of bees as you know, this, this murder mystery narrative, this, this victim of this ecologically done it was really interesting to me because it framed them as victim, but it framed them as victim of us. And I think we only came to realize that sort of quite a long time into that narrative as well. And it made us stand up and think about, okay, what relationship do we want to be into bees? Do we want to be the people that are are perpetrating this victim? Do we want to be the bad guy or the bad person, sorry, in, in this ecological whodunit narrative? And we didn't. And I think that has continued, despite the fact that the mystery narrative around colony collapse disorder has has lessened greatly because we've, you know, started to understand it more, we've started to understand there to be other factors. But it was that kind of shock crisis moment that pushed it into the public perception. And that I'm I'm interested to see, we talk a lot about the climate emergency at the minute, and I had a conversation today with somebody who was, and we were talking about the fact that there's this concern that that emergency narrative will not have the power that it should have, because when it continues to be an emergency, we don't necessarily keep having that same threat or that same fear. And I was thinking about the bees, and I was thinking, well, actually, that felt like this really shocking moment, but that care and that protection has continued and it made me feel very hopeful that despite the fact that emergency feels like it should be a temporary thing and that might lessen people's concern about it in the long term I thought that if we learn from what happened with the bees that we can be very hopeful about the fact that it will generate that kind of deep sense of care and that deep sense of wanting to respond and taking that forward in what we do even if it's lessened in its sense of urgency, it, it carries on within us once we've experienced it as emergency, experienced it as, you know, urgent crisis. Mm. Yeah, the momentum can build. And certainly a lot of people have latched on to these stories surrounding bees. As an artist yourself as well, I know you've been interested in looking at the cultural and creative responses mm -hmm. to the stories of bee decline. As you note, creative responses to extinction processes helps make these stories of loss visible and relevant, thus responding to the call of responsibility that human-driven extinction demands of us, end quote. What are some ways that you've seen artists and creatives engaging with the slow violence experienced by bees in their work? And how do you think they collectively contribute to our broader cultural transformation? I had the real pleasure of essentially dedicating my PhD thesis to understanding and exploring the work of so many different artists. Off the top of my head, I must have worked with about 20 for the, the PhD thesis. When I first started doing my PhD, just to put this in context, I was very much looking at the idea of how do we imagine and represent bee decline? And I started off by working with entomologists. I also did a beekeeping course and I, I talked to a lot of beekeepers as well. And then I had this third angle of saying, 
well, what's happening in the creative sector? You know, I've got this personal interest in the creative arts, but I didn't really explore it as a possibility for the focus of my work. And then it was it was within that first six month framework of your PhD where you don't really know what you're doing. You feel quite lost a lot of the time. And I started to find that the thing that I I felt most intrigued by and the thing that I felt was for me most transformative in terms of what I was learning about was the work being done by this artist because it embodied so much of what I was trying to articulate through my own work about how people feel about these and how people are wanting to respond to them. At the same time, I also started to become more interested in the environmental arts more broadly. I had a real interesting opportunity to go on a course directed at exploring the work of women who were artists and scientists within the environmental sector and giving us training. And that led me into this pathway of thinking, you know, how how does this creative practice really, really make it make a transformative change in how we understand environmental issues? So I decided to focus on that in my work. And I essentially started doing research on it and contacting brilliant artists. I have to choose a few to tell you about because I could tell you about all of them, but that would take a long, long time. So I think the one one that I'd really like to talk about is the work of Lily Hunter-Green. She is an amazing artist. She she works, I think she's based, well, she's certainly based in the UK, um, I think based in London. And she's been working with Honeybee since about 2014. She started off doing a lot of beekeeping practices when and she did this because she wanted to create a hive out of a piano so she worked with a beekeeper to create a hive that was attached to the side of the piano and then she made these amazing recordings of the different notes that bees um, buzz in and she started to learn all about the fact that bees buzz in different notes and that different notes apparently mean that they have certain moods or they're in a particular or they're doing some some kind of particular job so she she was looking at the relationship between sound and the bee culture and this obviously led her into you know this time bee fever coming up it it sparked her bee fever and she created this amazing composition based on bees now as she explored her work further of course she naturally came to starting thinking about decline and starting to think about what was happening in terms of the bees the honeybees vulnerabilities and she she's done she's done quite a few works on bees now but the one i'm going to tell you about today is based on this initial work and i can't remember what the initial work was called but the one that is based on it is called silencing the virus so this project silencing the virus took this initial composition that lily hunter green had made back in 2014 with the bees and that she'd used through various artworks And it took that into an installation space. And so Lily got the the public who came to see this installation, she got them to go into this room all wearing these bee suits. And they all had a piece of this music that she'd created. It had violins in it as well, because she's a a composer who plays the violin. And they they each had that on a headphone attached attached to this bee suit. And they entered into this space together And then the music started to slowly deteriorate in quality as they went near each other. So there was one person who started this kind of deterioration of quality and they moved towards other people and this continued. And what she was trying to do, she was trying to draw attention to Israeli acute paralysis virus, IAPV. And and she was doing that through recreating the sense of being infected by this virus. 
this was done pre-pandemic originally this particular project um, Lily does talk about that in different interviews and how that experience of being infected or being fearful from infection did come to resonate with people more strongly as the pandemic took over and as that became something that we actually started to think about in our own lives but prior to that obviously it was trying to draw attention to this experience in quite a novel way for most people I think the way Lily does this does reflect it is about something that's urgent but it does reflect that sense of slow violence in lots of ways because it's trying to draw attention to something which seems very cut off or sort of invisible from our own sense of urgency it's things that are happening within these hives that lots of people don't have a relationship to and yet they're affected by But really, I think Lily's work is about developing that sense of or trying to help people embody that experience in a way that I don't think you get from learning about the facts. You don't you don't have that emotional relationship in the same way. You know, some people might be able to access that through words and through science, but a lot of people will be aided by that playfulness, that imaginative element that Lily that Lily seeks to achieve. And of course, for her, hope is really important as well. So people do have the chance to resist this um, breaking down of the music by learning to, to to stay apart from each other, from essentially social distancing. And she talks about the fact that people need to have that sense of engaging with agency and engaging with hope through experiencing this particular installation experience. Slow violence is, is a really interesting one. I think it's perhaps more explicitly explored in another work that I could tell you about, which is by a brilliant producer called Laura Ryder. And Laura Ryder produced a show in around 2018. And she, she did a show all about two friends who one day find a wild bee. And they want to try and help save this bee, but they realise that the bee is in a park where there's no other flowers around. It's a kind of ecological wasteland. And so they go through this process, the two friends, of discovering what it might be like to kind of live in this world. They talk about living in a world where there's no food and what they would do. And they start to understand why they might want to care for this bee. So one of the friends helps the other friend to, to sort of look after this bee with her and they have experiences which are similar to the ones that bees are going through. So there's a scene where one of the characters gets her drink spiked as a party and Laura told me that that's meant to reflect how bees are actually being essentially poisoned or certainly being infected in some way through digesting pesticides. So they go through this process of learning about the problems facing bees and then at the end of it, again, they, they come to this narrative of hope by they plant up an old roundabout in their hometown and they rewild it together and they say, you know, this is where we're going to we're gonna make sure that bees have somewhere to come and we're going to wild it just like we're going to go through the same process of discovering who we are and what we want to be because they're meant to be two young characters in this show. I, I felt when I talked to Laura that she had been really inspired by this idea of slow violence because she was trying to, again, draw attention to how this long process of loss of habitat loss, as well as all these other factors, so pesticide use, for example, coming in, had come to this point where a single bee could not find the flower that it needed. But actually, that was a process that was happening over a long period, over, over a lifetime, because she represents her own lifetime through this play, over a lifetime of time slowly that had been chipped away further and further and further 
And she actually went on to do a play recently called All About Slow Violence. So I think called Slow Violence or certainly a title close to the title of Slow Violence. So she truly was actually inspired to go on and explore that in, in, in more ways through later works. I think generally separating the, the arts and the slow violence point, I do truly believe that these are suffering through slow violence. Um, there is a fantastic book by someone called Heather Swan, and she, it's called Where Honeybees Thrive. And she was the one who drew my attention to the fact that we are seeing bees kind of come to this urgent space, particularly honeybees, where we had this colony collapse disorder. But actually, the processes were set in motion long, long ago. And people like Dave Golson, through their work on habitat loss, do really draw attention to that. But also people, you know, within the natural beekeeping community saying, how has our beekeeping practices shifted to come to this point where this violence has become realised? But actually, it's been stitched through all these myriad processes that have been ongoing for many years. So Laura Ryder's work does draw attention to that that slow processes of violence that have come to a head, that have come to be realised in this particular time where we're starting to really treat these crises with a sense of urgency, or many of these crises, I should say, with a sense of urgency, because of course there's lots of species who go, whose losses go un, unthought about, slip under the radar every single day. Yeah, well, we really appreciate these creative inspirations because I think ch- change really has to come at all levels and sometimes it's not enough to provide people with the facts and mm-hmm. statistics but we have to feel kind of an embodied shift at a deeper level and what really hits the chord for each person is going to be different so yeah all of this to say I really resonate with you know valuing the contributions of different artists in driving cultural and socioeconomic socio-ecological mm-hmm. change. And on this note of also seeing other extinctions and species endangerment, one of the key questions you've raised as you explore the topic of the decline of bees is this question of what renders a life and thus a death as being seen to matter mm-hmm. and why. The heart of most mainstream dialogues around the decline of bees has to do with honeybees, to be more specific, Mm -hmm. even though, as you share, they aren't necessarily as threatened as other native bees, solitary or subsocial bee species, Mm -hmm. but perhaps are better understood because they've been paid more attention to and more closely monitored. How would you then elaborate on what has elevated the cultural significance of honeybees, particularly to people in Europe and the United States and beyond? And what might we miss if we gloss over the peripheral stories of the numerous other species of bees and other pollinators that humans are unable to as intimately monitor, manage, and relate to culturally? So, yeah, honeybees are that really interesting study. So they are the only social bee insect or fully social bee insect. You have subsocial bees such as um, lots of bumblebee species. But of course, the majority of bees are solitary species, um, including some bumblebee species as well. So when I first came to bees, I came to them through honeybees. I talked about my anthropology dissertation for my undergraduate degree and that was all about understanding how we perceived honeybee culture and how we made judgments about them based on this culture and we named them through our human namings 
again, based on what we perceived about the way they interacted with each other, these terms such as queen bee um, and worker bee, for example, was, were what I was really interested in at that time. Really, the reason that we are so fascinated with them is because we have this level of interaction with them, which is debated into how how much it's actually domesticated bees. So we have this level of interaction with them, which is quite hard for us to comprehend. In some ways, we've tried to force our ideals of them, our ideals of domestication on them. And at the same time, they retain this, this sense of wildness. And I think we're really fascinated by that. We're fascinated by the way in which they respond to us and the way in which we can share in that, that gift of honey and at the same time, they're never truly species that are that we can command. And they they retain that that romanticism about them. You know, they retain that capacity to swarm and to go up into the air and to have these seemingly kind of magical and mystical processes to us of the queen bee, you know, becoming impregnated and being able to lay eggs for five years or so and the way in which the worker bees um, respond to her and and dance with each other, you know, all this stuff is is at the same time kind of fascinating to us. And I think I think they're in that really interesting space where because we've been able to have that interaction, that sort of sense of trying to domesticate with them, and because we have that quite commercial relationship with them through that production of honey and other substances, we are continuously entangled with them, and yet they retain that wildness. And I think normally you have that sense of an animal either being in domestic care and being almost controlled or attempted to be controlled by humans or they're they're completely wild and honeybees bridge that gap and because of that you know we have these incredible stories and traditions around them you know that tradition as you say in particularly in European cultures of telling the bees about events that are really significant for example and being scared that if we don't tell them when for example their beekeeper has died that they'll they'll fly away and they won't come they won't come back so yes we've got that that really imaginative possibility with bees at the same time as being able to work with them and I think that's what's retained that particular intrigue that particular our particular intrigue with them to move on to your second point that was about what we miss if we're focusing on honeybees it's interesting that you say that because I think we do miss a lot by focusing on honeybees and I do think that they just distract us and that is partly because again of this very commercial relationship we have with them but I also like to think of them as a bit of a gateway into thinking about other species and once you have developed that interest in bees which so many people do which is so easy to develop it slips you into going well actually what other what other species do they represent you know you see these these signs everywhere which is saying like bee friendly lawn and you're going oh great it is a bee friendly lawn but it's also friendly for loads and loads of other species as well and it's supporting that that biodiversity those those flowers those other insects and so for me it feels like it could be that we are seeing a very limited view and i do think that's true but i do think it could be perceived positively as well in terms of what it allows people to explore further because you know particularly insect species are often seen as unloved they're, they're disregarded they're very other to us there's this great there's a fantastic quote about them giving a sickening crunch when we we staff we stamp on them 
which was really probably resonates with a lot of people. And so I think bees being this kind of focus actually does allow us to go, oh, actually, we don't want to stamp on insects because, yes, they're different, but they're still really important to us like the bees are. So, yeah, it can be seen as positive as well. There are a lot of amazing people who are advocating that we understand much more about wild species. Bridget Strawbridge Howard is somebody who comes to mind and she does a lot of work on how wonderful wild species are and how the focus on honeybees means that we're kind of prioritising honeybees, we're prioritising honeybee hives and actually that's not good either. You know, we need to make sure that we don't just save honeybees or protect honeybees in in disregard of the other spe- wild bee species that that their presence might actually harm so it is really important to recognize that and i don't think a focus on honeybees singularly is good but i do think they can be an interesting gateway into learning about insects and to being inspired about insects i i'm going into a class of primary school children tomorrow actually and i'm talking to them all about bees and i'm going to start off with honeybees because they have that cultural intrigue I'm going to move into thinking a little bit about bumblebee and other wild species. And we're going to finish off by thinking about all the other animals and all the other species, flowers and plants and other insects that those bees, protecting those bees actually allows us to protect as well. So you can see that kind of journey there from these exciting honeybees right through to, okay, what else is important? and What else do bees represent when we talk about saving them? And what else do we want to save as part of that? Saving them is obviously not something that I advocate because I don't think we save them. (laughs) I think we just resist what we're already Mm -hmm. doing to them. But yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate this invitation to see honeybees as kind of the hook and Mm -hmm. as you share this gateway into learning about everything else that is all entangled and Mm -hmm. a part of this collective planetary body that we all share. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of this conversation and your work has looked at the role of storytelling in Mm -hmm. influencing our views and understanding of the more than human world. And one of the most outstanding conclusions that I picked up on is that you recognize extinction as a distinctly biocultural process Mm -hmm. shaped as much by cultural values as it is by scientific fact. I assume this speaks to the contributions of the arts and the humanities Mm -hmm. and the creative fields, but how would you expand on this invitation to see extinction as a biocultural process? And we've used Mm -hmm. that term biocultural across various past episodes before, but what does that term refer to in this context? Yeah, absolutely. I I understand biocultural to mean that mix of the very physical, you know, the biological, and how that becomes entangled with the cultural. And when I think about cultural, I think about the human culture, but also in the context of bees, for example, how does it entangle with their culture? You know, how do we perceive that biological relationship between the different bees, uh, between honeybees into culture and how does that culture become entangled with our perception of them? So it's a very messy term. I think bio and cultural probably could be expanded to social and political and physical as well, perhaps, but it encompasses that very entangled relationship between the, the biological processes and the, the messy entanglements of everything around that that shapes how those biological processes are either supported or not supported. 
when I talk about it as a biocultural process, it is often within the context of arts because in that thesis process, I was thinking through what arts does in terms of engaging people with stories as a first, you know, that knowledge sharing process, but also going beyond that and going almost into a process of activity and action through showing people what they might do in terms of engaging with these. You know, it's through storytelling that we develop that capacity to say, here's here's the knowledge and here's somebody engaging with that knowledge through this story or here's something happening to kind of shape that story. And very often when we have a positive focus through that, I think that's really powerful for empowering people to say, actually, I can I can be part of that story and I can I can take that story into the real world and engage with it. So when I talk about extinction as a biocultural process, what I'm seeing or what I'm talking about is the fact that there's lots of different species who are alive and who are working within a cultural entanglement, which is shaping their capacity to to either thrive or perhaps become endangered and, and go into decline. There's some really interesting work by Trey Barnett, who is recently wrote a book in which he talks about the fact that people might remain alienated in the absence of practices which provide opportunities for people to to actually engage with grief, um, particularly in the context of non-human species. So I see art as giving people a way to engage with that grief and to engage with that emotional connection with the subject, but also to engage with a sense of agency over it. There's also some really interesting work by lead authors, uh, Chris DeMeyer, and the paper is called Transforming the Stories We Tell About Climate Change from Issue to Action. And they talk about the fact that it's through the stories we tell, through these kind of fictional stories, that we can show people taking action over the issue in alternative ways, you know, beyond the typical ways of or through consumer choice, for example, buying environmentally focused, environmentally positive products and actually give them alternative ways that they can follow a journey of positive environmental and environmentally conscious behavior through their lives. And that once people engage with that, once, you know, a small action that's seen as environmentally positive, that will lead into this circle of essentially kind of the satisfaction you get from it, it will lead to this cycle of them wanting to do more because they'll keep feeling positive about what they're doing. And so our behavior actually becomes, or our choices and our values become shaped by our actions. And I see that art is a really important way into allowing people that choice to kind of start off with that little seed of, I'm going to do this, that's really positive. I'm going to take this step towards realizing my agency to create change and then follow that narrative through. So coming back to extinction and coming back to the relationship between culture and creativity and extinction, that's where I see creativity is having that really strong influence on species lives and the choices that we collectively make about how we're going to interact with other species, how we're going to see them, how we're going to respect them and care for them. That is shaped through the stories that we tell and the stories that we tell about ourselves and about our own capacities as people. Walking around old halls, I don't recognize anything at all. Faces were clear, 
What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? So I already mentioned this today in in the podcast, and this was a super hard choice to make, but I would have to choose Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall and Kimura. So this book completely transformed how I saw the world. It just opened my eyes to different knowledge systems and ways of understanding in a way that despite the fact that I'd studied anthropology for years, I hadn't really accessed before. And it taught me that my way of interacting with the world and seeing the world was channeled through particular frameworks of thinking that I'd been taught from a very, very young age. And I go back to this book time and time again when I am lost for inspiration. I don't know where I want to go with my writing or I don't know where I can, you know, travel next in my thinking. I go back to Braiding Sweetgrass because everything she writes is, it's like, um, it's described on the front of the book as a hymn of love to the world. And it is a hymn of love to the world. And in a way, it's a hymn of love to everything that I find inspirational and I find fascinating and and I want to positively impact or contribute to through the writing and through the work that I do so yeah it's it's just full of this this very sweet wisdom what has been a personal motto mantra or practice that you engage with to stay grounded I've got a motto and I've got a practice that I want to talk about just to carry on with braiding sweetgrass just because I'd already introduced it one thing that I that really touched me about the book was the idea that all flourishing is mutual Over the past two years, particularly, I have come to really, really value my work as a teacher and as a lecturer. And I've got a lot of nourishment from that engagement with students. I felt that I've grown as a person from giving them that knowledge, but also that they have given me so much understanding about, you know, how we understand environmental crises and how we move forward in a positive way. And they've inspired me. And so when I was thinking about, you know, the motto that I take forward, it is the sense that when I flourish, my students flourish, but also when they flourish, I flourish as well. And I feel that that's really important. It's become really important to my work as a researcher as well. And of course, it makes sense in terms of working with, you know, the non-human world and working with these kind of all these biological and cultural ongoings. It translates into everything we do. All flourishing is 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 mutual and we cannot operate in isolation and it's not sustainable to do so. I want to just mention the fact that in my practice I have this this writing practice and this research this academic practice but I balance that out with my creative outlets my my painting is really important to me to just calm my mind but also I dance a lot as well. And I think having those kind of that creative outlet, that academic outlet and that physical outlet married together in a way that really helps me feel that I I can cope with anything that I, I, I get thrown in my kind of day-to-day challenges. They're a really beautiful balance for me. And that's that's how I that's how I keep grounded in the everyday. Yeah. 
And finally, what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? I've already taught slightly about finding inspiration in my students, but actually, I think I think they actually are one of the biggest inspirations at the minute. You know, there's so many wonderful people writing at the minute. People like Samantha Walton, um, who talks about beauty, Ellen Kelsley. Um, in her book Hope Matters and, and people like Britt Way which are drawing attention to these emotional experiences that we're having and these kind of challenging spaces that we're going through but actually it's when I take these works and I say to students oh you know have you heard about this work and a student comes back to me for example um, the Ellen Kelsley book Hope Matters a student read that and she's just not stopped talking about it ever since and it makes me go, oh, wow, yeah, actually, this is really worth paying attention to. You know, we do need to pick up this work and we, we, we can take this really rich inspiration from it. So there are there is the research I do. And then I, it's when I take it out to these two students and also to my colleagues as well. And you get that enthusiasm back. That's when that's when I feel really, really inspired. And that's why, I guess I said, teaching has become so important to me over the last two years as a researcher. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Green Dreamer, we're coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Rosamond's work, you can head to rosamondportisart.wordpress.com. And we will, of course, have this and other references from this episode shared in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Rosamond, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and providing your wealth of knowledge and inspirations. We really appreciate it. For now, though, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? So somebody, a student actually, asked me the other day how I stayed positive when I was talking about these, these really awful situations that are unfolding and that we're witnessing today. And I thought about how, I thought about this very carefully because I was wondering, you know, how do I stay positive? And I realized that whenever I'm talking about something that brings this sense of despair, actually I'm talking about people who have spoken up and who are going actually I don't want to give into this despair I want to you know rally against it I want to do something about it whether it's as a scientist whether it's as an artist whether it's as a as a writer and they want to talk about it and they want to stand up and that's what's the most powerful thing just standing up and talking about these things or creating some way of communicating about them and this is why something like this podcast is so important because it gives you that opportunity to reach out to make those networks and to draw attention to them and to take positivity from each other and to kind of nourish each other through that process of doing so and I realized that the reason I could stay positive and I, I told this to the student was because I had so much opportunity to feed off the positivity and the hope of others so that I could feel that there was pathways forward so I could feel that we are going to stand up and, and challenge the unjust, injustices that we are witnessing um, socially, ecologically, environmentally. So yeah, that would be what I would, would un yeah, that's my concluding remark is that we need to help each other and stay connected and be present in this sense of collective care. If you learned from or feel inspired by this conversation, we would so appreciate your support through a donation of any amount today at greendreamer.com support. As it stands, we can't continue our show beyond this year, but if every listener committed to chipping in just $2 a month, we would reach our fundraising goals in no time and be able to sustainably continue producing our show while remaining untethered to corporate interests. 
You can also help us out a lot by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing your favorite episodes out with your loved ones. Our song featured today is At the Edge of It by Oro Pandola. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Simahali. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>